Our reading this morning comes from Galatians 2. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor and the very thing I had been eager to do all along. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, uh, shout out uh, just the, the sound crew, man. We got it crispy this morning and we were doing the sound check. We're ready to go. Um, on that note, we got to just pray, pray with me and then we'll get into it this morning. Father, we thank you for the moments that we share together this morning. Um, the, all the moments we have right now, we're, we're here in our bodies and we're, we wanna be present to you. And we just ask that you would speak to us this morning. More than information or content or any of that, what we need desperately is to hear your voice. So we just invite you to come Holy Spirit and speak to us this morning. We love you, amen, amen. Well, hey, my name is Cam. If I haven't met you, I would love to. And um, I'm a huge proponent of voice text. Is anybody a voice texter in the house today? Joe doesn't even know what that is. I sent you one and you didn't text me back. So I don't know if you know. Voice texting, for those of you, uh, I'm just kidding. But I love voice text, man. It's where you can, I sent one to a couple of you and none of you have responded. So voice text, if you want to hang with me, you got to get on your voice text game, man. It's what the, it's what the cool kids are doing and I want, I'm trying. So what you do with the voice text, right, is you can actually, they can hear what you're saying in the voice text. It's, it's awesome. It's like a voicemail. There you go. It's like a voicemail, Joe. You remember that? I'm just kidding. Um, Voice texts are amazing. This is why I love voice texts. Because tone really, really matters, right? Like, have you ever just lulled over a text message that somebody sent you? Like, they're like, how are you doing? You're like, how am, I, how am I doing? Like, how did he say that? How are you doing? How are you doing? You know what I mean? Like, was, it, were they, was he trying to make it? Was he trying to advance something on me? Like, were they, like, what's the, what's the tone? Like, the simplest of text messages, you can try to, you can overthink the tone, right? But I love a voice text because it just takes it out. Like, here's my tone. Hey, bro, it's me, Cam. You know what I'm saying? Like, I love, <laughs> that's how most of my voice texts start, by the way. You're like, it's, I know, Cam, it's you. You're, the text message comes across from Cam. But I love, I've loved voice texts, okay? Because I love the, the, the idea that you can hear my tone. Because tone matters. Tone is significant, right? You've had to been in a relationship for like all of like 13 seconds to know it's not about what you say. It's about how you say it, Right? Like you can say a thousand different things. You can say one word and it can mean like a thousand different things based on your tone. And why that's significant is the tone actually reveals the heart of the person, right? They reveal the attitude and the spirit of what's behind it. 
And one of the things that we've been looking at in the book of Galatians is Paul's tone. And Paul has been aggressive, right? Like what we've looked at so far through all of Galatians 1, we just started Galatians 2. We're working through an entire series, gonna go basically the whole semester through Christmas, looking at the book of Galatians, six chapters. We're in chapter two today, but most of what we've seen is his tone, his attitude. He uses strong language, like who has bewitched you? He calls people foolish, right? Like you don't need the voice text here. You know the brother's tone. He's, he's intense, he's aggravated, he's um, frustrated. And what we look at, what we see that what frustrates Paul might not be what we think frustrates Paul. See, because what frustrates Paul is that people are adding contents and concepts to the truth of the gospel. He's not frustrated necessarily by their morality or by what they're doing and their loose living, but he's frustrated by what they're believing, that they're adding things to the simplicity of God's word, the simplicity of the gospel. And we've even talked about this throughout the series a little bit. He, he has some crazy letters that he has to write, like to the, to the people in Corinth, 1st, 2nd Corinthians. He needed two entire letters. But his tone is far more gentle with the crazy Corinthians than with the almost religious Galatians. And the reason that is, is because Paul tends to think, and we tend to come along in the same vein, that, that, that maybe our biggest um, opponent's to living life with Jesus isn't even our, our morality or our lives, but it's actually um, religion. It's adding things to the message and the simplicity of the good news of Jesus. So that's where we're going to start this morning. And I'm, I'm going to, if you, if you have a Bible, we've got a bunch of, of black open Bibles that you can open up or you can use your phone if you're so disciplined to not send a text during the message. But, but basically this morning, I'm going to read a little bit and we're going to talk a little bit and we're just going to try to unpack this passage a little bit. So Galatians chapter two, verse one, it starts with this, Paul talking, he says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. This time with Barnabas, I took Titus along. Also, I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles because I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. So pause right there, right? So Paul has been doing his thing for like 14 years, right? So if you know the story of Paul, right? He once was Saul. He was riding a donkey from one place to another, trying to, he's basically persecuting the church, angry against the message of Jesus. Jesus himself knocks him off his donkey. He has this revelation that Jesus is Lord. And then all of a sudden he's launched into ministry. So for 14 years, basically he's been doing his thing. And he says, he gets some kind of word, some kind of revelation that says, you need to go make sure that you guys are on one accord here. Unity central to the message of Jesus. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. But he, but he ends up running to Peter, James, and John just to make sure that they're on the same page, that they're preaching the same gospel because the message is so important to Paul, what we are talking about. And then it continues, right? Verse three. Yet not even Titus who was with me was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. So let's just pause there for one second, right? He said that there was some false believers who came in to spy on their, on their what? On their freedom. Isn't that interesting? He's like, there's some bros that came into our meetings and they were trying to spy on like our doctrine or our theology or what we believe or even like what we practice. But he said, they were so captivated by our freedom. I mean, he could have said a lot of other things, but he says they were interested in the freedom of the people. I mean, like, can you imagine that? 
Could you imagine if that, like that, that, that was just our like ministry philosophy? Like, let's just be so free and live in such a freedom that the gospel produces in us that people are just like coming in from outside. They're like, ah, oh, man, these people, right? They're so free. Like, wouldn't that help our Christianity PR, man? Like if we could just be like so free all the time, but more times than not, that's not the reality of the experience of people outside the community of faith. We tend to think it's so many other things, right? I remember even my own experience. Like I used to think, man, I don't know if you guys ever tried to keep a beach ball under the water. You guys ever try to do that? It's like nearly impossible because gravity and science and stuff, right? So you try to like keep the beach ball under the water. That was like the, that was what I thought Christians were about at first. I'm just like, man, they're just the people who are just like, ah, hey man, like good to see you. I'm a Christian, you know? And then it's like, oh, let me just, I'm trying not to look at that anymore. Sorry, bro. Oh, I just try to keep the beach. They're just like, try, it's like, it's all about restraint and restriction and trying not to do stuff. But he says, that's not what the, they were captivated by. They were brought in, they were spying out on their, on their freedom. They were so captivated by the, just the joy and the, what's going on here, man? We got to check this out. Something different, right? Isn't it Gandhi? Gandhi says this, right? When he, when he was looking at kind of Christianity in Great Britain, you guys know the quote. It's, it's super famous. If you don't, then let me enlighten you, right? He says, if only Christians would live according to their belief in the teachings of Jesus, He's like, we would all become Christians if that was the case. And I think that's interesting because that's what the gospel is all about. It's all about freedom. Even in Galatians chapter five, we'll read that in a couple of weeks. I don't know, like a month. So drop it out there a little early. But he says this, right? He says, for it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Like that is the center of the gospel, that, that, that the motivation behind why Jesus sets us free is our freedom being free from having to prove yourself all the time, being free from the shame and guilt of your past or even your yesterday or the, or the fear of tomorrow, being free from the identity that families and friends have put on us, being free from trying to provide your own sense of security. He came to set us free from all of that. And just from the jump this morning, if you're believing anything other than that, it's a lie. That's what Jesus is all about. He's about our freedom. And that's one of the reasons that Paul's tone is so aggressive. It's so dramatic. So in our face, because the greatest threat is religion. And religion masks and adds and looks like the gospel, but it, but it sounds the same and it can look the same, but it's an entirely different message. And that's what we've been talking about in this book, right? And when I say religion, this is what I mean. I say re religion is this, my performance equals God's acceptance or Jesus plus my goodness, plus my morality, plus my discipline, that equals God's acceptance of me. And just so we're clear, that's like the opposite of the message. Jesus's message and his very person and character and nature is all about grace. See, grace is something that costs the giver everything and the recipient nothing. Otherwise it's not grace, right? That's a contract. You hold up your end of the deal. I'll hold up my end of the deal. Let's shake hands. That's a great sign it. Let's go. That's, that's it. That's not the gospel. The gospel is a covenant, a covenant where we constantly fall short, where we constantly let, let our side of the deal down. And he never does. Where we're faithless, but he never changes. Where we fall short, but Jesus is always enough for us, right? The scripture says that he became sin so that we could become righteous, that he completely swapped us places, that's the good news of the message of Jesus, that my, he became my sin, my past, my present, my future. And now in him, we become the righteousness 
of God, that your identity right now in this moment, as someone who says yes to Jesus, you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. No matter how you came into this place, no matter what you're about to do after this place, you have a new identity and we are invited to live in the freedom of that identity. It's the invitation of Jesus to live as someone who's actually forgiven and loved and accepted. It's the invitation of Jesus as come to me, I'll give you rest. I'll give you freedom. Take my yoke upon you. I'll carry the weight. Come live with me, work with me. And that's why Paul gets so fired up because to add anything to this message is actually an entirely different message. He's saying that there's some people who've infiltrated our community who are trying to add stuff to the message, right? That's what he says. And he says, this is basically what they're adding, right? They're adding, there's, there's this guy named Titus and he's a Greek man. Titus grew up with different stories, different traditions, different kinds of food. And basically what they're saying is they're like, man, look, Titus, that's, that's great, all the Jesus stuff. And that's, that's good, you know, grace that welcomes you into the party. But if you really want to be a man of faith, if you really want to be a man of God, here's what you have to do. You, gotta, you have to enter into circumcision. And circumcision was, it was a Jewish practice for the time. It was, it was how they actually identified as a new convert to Judaism. So they're, they're, they're God fears. They're actually zealous for something. They're actually not like totally off and just trying to be like jerks or something. But, it's, but, their, but their train of thought is just off right here. And they're saying, hey, hey, Titus, here's the deal, man. That's great. But you need to add this to your faith. In Romans chapter eight, it says this. It says, for those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And all that means is that God has predetermined your life, this is the purpose of your life, is to conform into the image of Jesus. And that's what's so frustrating to Paul because they're not trying to conform Titus into the image of Jesus. They're trying to conform Titus into their customs, their different ideologies, their different practices. And Paul says, that's not the gospel. That's not freedom. That's not what you're invited to. You're not invited into conformity, into something that you're not. And I love that. It's beautiful because it says this, it says you can bring your full self to Jesus. You can follow Jesus. Let me say this, while still being you. There's not a spiritual side of you and then like another side of you. There's just you and Jesus wants all of it. Psalm 139 says that you were fearfully and wonderfully made by God. That in your mother's womb, he loved you and he made you. And what that means is that you're free to be you. And now grace changes everything, right? It changes the message, the message of the gospel, the filling of the Holy Spirit. It radically changes everything, but we're still who we are. You're still the God, you're still the you that God made when he, when, when he knit you together in your mom's womb, right? There's nobody like you. And for you to conform, to try to be like someone else is actually ungodly. Like it's actually anti-gospel. It's anti the freedom of the gospel. There's nobody like you. I've been doing this thing in some of my sermons where I like kind of tell a cliffhanger story. So I'm about to do that again. Like I told a story about how I found some like little uh, dirt things in my house and people were like, oh, I got texts after. I never concluded the story. So I got texts after like, Cam, what was it? Was it termites? I was like, ah, I'm gonna keep doing that. So anyways, I got arrested when I was in college. Dot, dot, dot. Oh, yeah. It's just so people talk to me later and I can send more voice texts. Um, but I got arrested when I was in college. All right, it's not that crazy, but if you wanna know, text me later. Um, you know the first thing they do when they arrest you? It's really interesting. It's really crazy. None of you know because you're men and women of God. <laughs> but for me, 
When I got arrested, the first thing they do, right? They, they take you in. They take a little mugshot. And you know what they do after that? They do your fingerprint. Isn't that crazy? It, got, it really got me thinking. Well, first off, now I'm in the system, you know? <laughs> well, so if, I, if ever I'm, but, but it's crazy, right? If I'm in the system. So if anybody ever, if ever like there was a crime scene and they found my fingerprint on the scene of the crime, they would know, oh, that's Cam Michael's fingerprint. Isn't that wild? Like if you ever just looked at your finger, like there's just these little tiny little squiggly lines that are different than every other human in all of the world. Isn't that nuts? There's only one you. And for you to try to be like someone else is like, it's, it's, it's anti who God made you to be, to try to conform, to try to be like, man, and it's personal to me because I've, I've just always, maybe, maybe for some of you too, like I always just kind of felt like I was like on the outside of Christian stuff. Even like this, this week, Jeremy and I went to this like pastor's gathering and I was there and I'm like, oh man, I don't belong here. I feel off here. I don't know. Like I feel like, and I start saying words that everybody else is saying because I'm trying to fit in. And it's like, what is that? That's not, that's not the gospel. That's religion. Man, we, um, what's, 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 what's really crazy is it's actually like, it's a paradox. It's different than that, right? D- David Benner, one of, one of our favorite authors here, he says this, paradoxically, we actually become more and more like Christ when we become more and more our unique, true self, right? Colossians 3 says this, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden in Christ, that the actual you that God made is actually hidden as we, as we dive deeper into Jesus, we find out our gifts and our personality and all of that. And Paul comes against that heart to say, don't conform into, into the, whatever you're trying to fit into, but be like Jesus as if he were you, as if he were a 29 year old dude with two kids who's trying to survive, as if he was a 50 year old school teacher, become like Jesus as if he were you. And so not, not only does that apply to us personally, but also applies to us culturally, right? Like think about this in Revelation chapter seven, verse nine, it's one of the most beautiful imageries of the new creation. It says there will be people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, and we will all be singing before the throne of God. Salvation belongs to our God. So just think about that for a second. We are all baptized into a new family but yet we bring, we bring all of our cultural differences to it, right? It's not just one collective homogenous people saying good, good father for the rest of our lives, right? Like that's not actually what it is, but it's all these different tribes and tongues and languages. And you bring all of that. It's beautiful. It's, it's the dream and the vision of biblical unity. It's not assimilation or conformity, but it's actually bringing our cultural differences and embracing the beauty of it. It's a picture of the, a beautiful multi-ethnic, multi-generational family of God. It's, it's what Paul talks about again here in Galatians, where he says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male and female, but we're all one in Christ Jesus. He's saying that we have, you actually have a multitude of identities that you bring together. First and foremost, you are one in Christ Jesus, that we have this, this identity as the family of God. But within that, we are still Jew and Greek and slave and free and male and female, that we have multiple identities that we bring to the table. But your primary identity is one as a child of the living God, but it doesn't eliminate the other identities that we express. I mean, I mean, we see this even when our, with our own families, right? I mean, like, like my, my sister is like all into like riding horses and cowboy farm things and I'm not, <laughs> right? But a good dad says, yeah, I love that. Let's go R- ride your horses. Cam. This is great. Like we all express our parents and our family differently. That's not a bad thing. And you see that even in the most dysfunctional families or when you try to conform and fit into a box, you got to be like your brother, be like your sister. Like that never works. That's not healthy. 
And the same is true of the family of God that we express our good heavenly father in all of these different ways. It's actually a beautiful picture of the glory of God. That his glory is so beautiful and big and majestic that not one cultural group or one ethnicity or one type of person can even fit it. It's that all of us together singing worship to him is actually what reflects his glory most truly and clearly and beautifully. That's a picture of biblical unity. And it's really funny because that's actually what we see in Jesus' disciples, right? Now, I don't know. Has anybody watched The Chosen in here? We got some Chosen watchers. Chosen is a great show, some snaps. Some people are like, I don't want to see any version of Jesus until I see him face to face in glory. I'm like, I'm with you actually most of the time, right? Um, I'm actually like that. I'm usually like anti these things, to be honest, but I, lo- I like this show, The Chosen. I like it a lot. And here's one of the things that I actually love about it is, is the way that they portray all the different disciples. You know what I'm saying? So you get a, like a really clear picture. These are not just like 12 dudes who are like, hey buddy, oh, let's go to the new teacher. It's Jesus. We're all best friends. Like that wasn't it at all, like at all, right? Like you have j- just one example, one relational turmoil here. You got a dude named Matthew who is like completely aligned with the, like politically with the Roman state, right? And then you have a zealot named Simon who is basically completely against the Roman state, right? Like they are completely opposites. Like politically, I won't go here for a second, but it's like the forest of the right and the forest of the left. And Jesus is hyper-intentional. He picks this one and he picks this one and he brings them together. And you know what biblical unity is? It's these two dudes. And the only thing they have in common is Jesus. You can see it in the, you can see it in the movie. That's why I kind of like it. Because they're like, ah, we'll just keep walking. We'll see another healing together, I guess. That's fine, right? It's like, ah. But, it's, but it's, he unifies them together. And that's the beautiful picture of biblical unity. That's what it is. We, we tend to think biblical unity is like, finally, I'm in a space where everyone thinks the way I think. And even when we pray for unity, it's like, oh God, help them to align more with my thinking. You know what I'm saying? Like that's usually what we think of, but that's not it. That's actually not the freedom of the gospel that we're talking about. The freedom of the gospel allows us to be different kinds of people in one space. It just says, we just want, we're here to worship Jesus. We're here together. And along the way, a lot of the times it does bring us closer and closer together but ultimately it's all about him. We don't have a lot in common except for Jesus. And what's interesting, even as you follow the passage along, Paul is very intentional and almost passionate about unity, right? I, lo- I, love, I love this passage. It's so interesting, right? He, he keeps going on verse six. He says, as for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God shows no favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. Don't try to change each other and force each other. They're like, hey, this is your grace. That's my grace. Let's do it together. For God who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised was also at work with me, an apostle to the Gentiles. And he says this, James, Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars of the faith, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and to the circumcised. I love that. That's what Paul does. He brings them together around the, centra- the centrality of the message and the good news of Jesus. But he doesn't try to, they don't try to conform to fit into one another's boxes. They, they allow each other to live and do life together. I love the humility of Paul, right? Like you think, man, like with an encounter like Paul, the zeal of Paul, you'd be like, I don't care what they're doing. I'm gonna do my thing. I know he knocked me off my donkey, bro. Like I'm good. I don't need that. But it's humility to say, hey, I, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm, I'm not off here. 
that I could be in the right, that we could be of one accord, that we could, we could, we could be together here. He says, hey, is there, is there anywhere that I'm off? Let's talk about it. And that's what happens when we're won over by Jesus. We actually, it produces this humility in us to lead to unity. And, and, and that sounds great, right? We're like, that's beautiful, man. Unity, oh, we all, we all have all, nothing in common except for Jesus, except for our hearts basically want to do everything the opposite way. Rather than togetherness and unity and grace for one another, we, we, we tend to live mostly shaped by our culture and our own sinful desires and, and even demonic strongholds. We, we tend to live out of the ambition of our hearts. We tend to live out of just like what I can get and other people that come up against me, that's frustrating to me. So I just kind of, I don't have to spend time with them. And it's actually what causes disunity most of the time. It's a selfish ambition. I, I love the way James says it in James chapter three. It's a warning to us, but also an invitation, right? He says, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. So such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find every disorder, every vile practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace, reap a harvest of righteousness. So like, even when we talk about comparison and envy and these things, like even they, they flesh themselves out in simple spiritual things like CG, it's, it's actually, it's deeper than that. It's more than just like, ah, wish I was smart like that. You know, it's, it's, it's actually even deeper than that. He says, it's, it's, it can be demonic. It's the enemy trying to dismantle and derail our community to try to impress someone or to hear someone and be like, oh, I don't know how they would say that. It's actually anti the community. Right? Judgment can tend to creep into our hearts. We, we can even hear it even as we pray. Anybody ever been a part of like corrective sermon prayer where you're like, oh God, thank you for the nations. And the other person's like, hey, oh God, thank you for our neighbors. You know, it's like, there's like this weird, it can happen in prayer even, even in our own spiritual practices or permans. That's what I call them, prayer sermons. Where all of a sudden someone like, you didn't even talk to God, bro. You just preached a five minute sermon. You know what I'm saying? Because they're trying to teach you something while we pray. You know what I'm saying? But that's in us this comparison, this envy. And ultimately it's just this judgment that lives within us. And I think what we see in the passage, the primary thing that is the antidote to that, two things, mission and grace, mission and grace. How Paul ends this this section, he says this, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. So mission, right? After they experience this new unity, this thing that they have in common, they say, they, t- they tell Paul, they say, hey man, just, just one thing, man, make sure that we remember the poor. And Paul's like, for sure, bro, we got that. That's what we're about. And see, because mission is both the fruit of unity, but it's also the means of unity most of the time, right? Like there was like a bunch of statistics during COVID about all these marriages that were falling apart, right? You guys remember, remember that? It was, like a, it was like a hard time for marriages. And, and some people are like, well, it's just exposing the problems they had all along. And I'm like, yeah, probably. But also, man, to just be in the same room with one person for like 16 hours, 24 hours, like day after day after day after day is, is hard. It's really hard. Because when you're not going to work, when you don't have mission, when you don't have purpose, like that's just a challenge. You're not meant to live that way. So churches and communities that are not missional, they tend to actually have the most disunity in them because they're not outward focused, but we're just kind of always in here. You know what I'm saying? Or like played basketball and always, like I never got in a fight with my teammates during the game, but in practice, man, oh my gosh, like we would go at each other, right? I'd be in arguments, I'd be pushing guys all the time. 
because it was practice. But ultimately the purpose of the thing was not practice. It was the game. It was for us to be out doing something together. And the more we did stuff together, the more that actually unified us as one, right? You, you tracking with what I'm saying here? Mission is actually one of the main culprits of our unity, but unity also breeds more mission. It's when we lose our burden for people that we lose our unity. It's when we stop looking out and we just keep our heads down and keep looking around here that we actually, it creates more and more disunity and it, cre- it creeps in. It's ultimately the mission that concludes this meeting that brings them in to unity. And the mission in particular on this one was mission to the poor. There's something even outside the walls of the church that brings the church together in a closer way. It's something about hearing Emily's story that you're like, yeah, we're in this together, right? And guys, I say, man, I love our church. We're about this. We are about serving our city, serving our community, serving the poor, serving the marginalized, coming alongside and loving our city. We have people who work and give their time and energy and efforts to refugees of the city of refuge. We have people who work for my life and turning point and for Columbia. We have CASA advocates. We have people who give up their homes and time and energy to be foster parents and welcome families, welcome kids who are not, don't have families into their homes to experience a family life. Like we have this in our church. We have people who've moved into neighborhoods to be a loving presence in the neighborhood. They could live outside somewhere else, but they've moved in here intentionally to say, I'm gonna love my city and my community. And we want more of that. We want more of that. And here's why. Not necessarily because it's like what we ought to do or like the Christian thing to do, but because our life and freedom and experience with God is actually completely wrapped up into that. My, my, uh, for the past like three or four years, I've been, I do some stuff with this place called Turning Point. It's a houseless day center downtown in Columbia. And man, I'm not gonna lie. When I first came, I was like, look at me. I'm so spiritual. I give up one hour a week to spend time here. You know what I'm saying? And man, the more time I'm there, it's like Emily just said in her testimony, the more time you spend there, the more proximity you have to people who, who really have nothing, the more you actually realize we are far more in common than we have that separates us. I love this Lilia Watson quote. She says, if you've come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you've come because your liberation, your freedom is bound up with mine, then let's, let's work together. There's something deeply formative to our proximity to the poor, to the marginalized, to the helpless, to the hopeless, right? Like, it's like Emily said, it just exposed, I have the same deep core need that's down there, but I just have a thousand different ways and means to cover that thing up. But most of the time, we have so much more in common. So we, not, we, we, we wanna serve and we wanna give these things away, but it's also as long as, as we're coming alongside, it's, it's what we're, we wanna be about as a church. We wanna continue to be about that. And for a lot of us though, man, we, we don't really actually know how to interact or feel or think about the poor and marginalized in the world and even in our city. Or whenever it's brought up, right? There's like kind of two common emotions that even as I'm talking about this, I can almost feel them in the room. There's like, some of them is like the shame, like, ah, I know, I don't do that very well. Or there's like judgment. It's like, well, I should figure it out themselves. You know, I've done my, done, my, done my due diligence to do my life. Shame and judgment. And, and usually when we think about those things, shame, out of that emotion, it's, it's most time because we think that's what Christians ought to do. It's kind of what Christians are supposed to do. But Paul's language is entirely different, right? He says that remembering the poor is the very thing he is eager to do. See that grace Grace has so radically transformed Paul and Peter and James and John for that matter, that they are, it's, it's not just like what the, ah, it's what we're supposed to do now. You know, we're Christians. We love Jesus. We're supposed to serve these people. 
but it's what they're eager to do. See, grace, it, it transforms us. It moves us from ought to to eager. I love Kurt Thompson. He's a psychologist. He says, our own judgments almost always flow from our own self-condemnation. It's actually deeper. It's actually what we started with, that our inability to receive the grace and the mercy and the good news of Jesus is actually the thing that prevents us from living lives of mission. So our shame and condemnation, they leave us saying, ah, I probably should do this, you know? It's grace that makes us eager. It moves us from ought to or should to eager. And man, I know eager. I know when I have 8 a.m. tea time the night before, you know what I'm saying? I can't sleep that night because I'm eager. I can't wait to get out on the course, but I can't even imagine huge gap in my own life between my eagerness to do something like that and my eagerness to just go serve and be and remember and love the poor, the needy, the marginalized. But it's how transformative grace is actually supposed to be. That is actually how we're supposed to feel about people. And grace, not just as a concept, but grace as a person. Grace met in the person of Jesus. He came full of grace, full of truth. Grace really is just meeting and living with and living under the free, unconditional love and acceptance of Jesus. Right? Like I just think our, even our, phrase, our phraseology, that's not a word, our, our th- how, how we talk about grace Sometimes it's just, it's, it's backwards too. It's like, we're like walking on this tightrope and we've got this like net that's underneath them. It's like, well, keep doing your thing. And if you fall, there's grace. You know what I mean? But that's the exact opposite of even how Paul talks about it. Paul says that they perceived the grace within him and that's why they accepted him. Not his talents, not his skills, not his abilities, but the grace and man, I, I don't know, man. I, 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 I don't know if, if you feel the same way, but sometimes I'm just like, I'm, aren't you tired? Like even in our own community group, man, we, we've been talking about this. Just like, man, if I could just really believe that grace message, you know, I think I'd be different. If I could just really get it. man, I just think the invitation of Jesus, the invitation this morning is to actually believe the good news of Jesus. See the gospel culture we're after, it comes from encountering the grace of God. Loving the poor actually comes from encountering the grace of God and even unity that we long for as a church, a community, even outside of that, it comes from encountering the grace of God. So even as I close here, I just have a couple prayer invitations for us. We're gonna have some people in the back just ready to, just ready to pray with you and for you if, you if you want that, but a couple invitations. One, if, you're, if you just feel like you're harboring bitterness, if you just feel like you have envy and jealousy, um, I, I just want to invite you to, to name that with, with someone in the back and just have them pray for you. Pray, pray grace on you. To just name it is, a, is to actually set yourself free from it. Ask for forgiveness and, and, and for God to actually transform that. If you're continuing to just seek renewal, that you just feel like everything in the Christian life, remembering the poor, whatever that is, just feels like a lot of ought to. We're gonna have people in the back just praying, Holy Spirit, will you wake them up to the realities of God's love? If you feel super spiritual, but you don't feel really loved, something's off there. We want to feel and experience and live life from the love of God. And then one more, if you just want to ask God for a new heart and clarity around how you are um, to specifically love and serve and come alongside the poor. We're gonna have people in the back just ready to pray for you, but pray with me now as we enter into worship. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life transforming message of grace. And we sit here in your presence, even this morning, knowing that we don't just need to know it again or to think about it again, but we, we need to encounter your grace. 
Holy Spirit, you're the one who, who shines light on the love of God. You're the one who pours the love of God into our hearts. And I, I just say for us this morning, that's, that's what we're desperate for. Even if we don't think that's what we need, that's ultimately what we need this morning. So would you, would you do that in us as we, as we worship, as we look to you? You say you inhabit the praises of your people. So we just want more of your presence this morning. Will you bring clarity to us of, um, of, of how we're to interact with our city would you bring clarity to us as, as a church as we want to cast vision for how we can um, actually practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things? So we love you, God. We just ask even that you continue to move in our hearts this morning as we sing. Amen.